Hello, everybody. I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And I'm Nikki Birch. I'm Backlisted's producer. And thanks for downloading this episode of Locklisted. We've put this onto the general Backlisted feed because we had such nice feedback to the children's reading episode of Locklisted that we put up in January. And uh, back in August, uh, when we recorded that, we also recorded the episode you're about to hear, a sequel uh, about the books that, that we read or loved when we were teenagers. So that was our children's reading episode. And this is our teenage reading episode. And there's quite a lot in of discussion here about uh, specifically about J.D. Salinger and The Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> because that's the book everybody or nearly everybody reads that when they're a teenager. And we did a lot of reading of Salinger uh, last summer. So that feeds into this as well. And Nick, I can't. There was also a sort of general chat around kind of young adult fiction, wasn't there? And whether it's changed a bit um, as well. And, uh, and we all kind of talked about the books that we read as teenagers and influences that we had yeah that's right and I think we might have mentioned slugs by Sean Hudson but if we did (laughs) if we didn't then we we I'm mentioning it now anyway Locklisted is a podcast that we make for people who support our Patreon above a certain level what they called lot listeners and master storytellers that's right lot listeners and master storytellers and basically for those people who are very kindly support us um through Patreon you get an extra podcast um two extra podcasts a month and so if you want to get the extra podcasts the lot listed podcast just head to our patreon account which is patreon.com forward slash backlisted and that's how we pay for backlisted so if you want to support backlisted and if really as a bonus get these episodes of lot listed where we talk about books and we also talk about film music art tv and ideas we're currently working our way John is working his way through the wire and we are uh, having a kind of running commentary throughout that. So it's sort of like the behind the scenes show of Batlisted is what you get on Lotlisted. Anyway, everybody, thanks very much for listening. Uh, enjoy this episode of Lotlisted on our favourite teenage books, which was recorded in August last year. See you next time. Well, we'd like to thank listeners, the Beatles, for sending that in. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> was was that your um was that your teenage uh, teenage life represented there, Andy? In a way, it was. What trying to uh, trying to shoehorn myself into the Beatles? Yes. <laughs> Were you into the Beatles as a teenager? Have you not, have you not noticed my teenage life, <laughs> my whole life? Yeah, yeah. So I my <laughs> I keep this short, but it, in a nutshell, I really I borrowed the Red and Blue albums from Catrum Library in 1980, early 1980, and I. I can remember listening to specifically Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, Forever, and I Am the Walrus, and having never heard music like that, it was like music from another planet. It was the best music, the best music that I'd ever, ever heard. So I'd started buying Beatles records in the summer of 1980, and then, of course, John Lennon was shot in December 1980, connecting us to the one of the books we're going to talk Indeed. about today. John Lennon was shot in 1980, and, and like most of the rest of the world, I went Beatles crazy at that point, I think. So do you so, know that's funny, because I, as a late teen, got quite into reggae and helped by Wilsdon Library, which for a while was my nearest library as a late teenager, which had a very good selection of kind of 80s and 90s reggae. 
So I used to borrow them. Yeah, you know, Wilsdon, big black population in Brent and around there. And so I would, you know, and and I borrowed loads of CDs particularly, you know, and and would tape them, obviously. That's what you did. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to the library. Library is amazing. I, I, I slightly different, but... When I was at college, I went. To, there was a really good. There is still a very good library in Oxford that wasn't attached to the university. Just you know, the, the Oxford Public Library, and they had a fantastic collection. So I took out lots and lots of opera. I was having a bit of an opera jag, and and you could, you know, they're really expensive to buy, quite big in those days. So you yeah, just buy them and tape them. It's fantastic. Oh, do you remember the audio books that you'd get from the library? And they came in these cassettes, these massive yes. blocks, padded of cassette, cassettes, yeah. and you'd yeah. open them and be like, oh. Cassette yeah. one, because you'd, you'd want the kind of unabridged, yeah. wouldn't you? And that's where you'd get I, them in the library. I borrowed the, in 19, I know, because I can remember when it was, because you can date this because of the, in 1981, I borrowed the Ruttles LP from Caterham <laughs> Library. There must have been a Beatles fan working at Caterham Library. I knew nothing about the Ruttles. I'd never seen the TV. I'd never, even as a Python fan, I'd never heard of it. And I looked at it and it was like, oh, this looks like four Beatles records. And I, I, so I remember listening to it. I sort of knew it was a Mickey tape, but it's not a Mickey tape at the same time. It's the most wonderful love letter to, to the it Beatles is. and to it those is. records. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so the, so here we are. By the time you hear this, you probably will have heard an episode we recorded about childhood reading. And it, we so enjoyed that. We thought, well, we wanted to keep, keep those teenage dreams alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rolling on into teenage reading, because that teenage period is the time where you either I think you either get the reading thing for life or you drift away. Maybe not forever, but but it's it, the transition is the is the it, tricky it is time. Really tricky. It's definitely that thing of feeling that you don't want to be reading kids books anymore and did you ransack your we talked about what our parents had on their shelves did you actively start prowling mum and dad's shelves for stuff that looked a bit racier um, or scarier or no i, I sort of did that or... thing of of talking to other boys at school and w- w- trying to figure out what they were <laughs> reading because they you know and it was mostly <laughs> Crap, but I, I mean, the, the book that I'm, I'm, I'll talk well, I won't really talk about it much because I haven't reread it since, but it was The Sunbird by Wilbur Smith was a, was a big moment for me. It was my attempt to write to read a big adult novel with kind of adult characters and sex in it. It was published in 72 and it was apparently a bit of a change of pace for, for Wilbur, who has now gone on, as we probably all know, to write at least 35 novels, I think, but enough enough for anyone. And it was uh, set in, in Africa, as usual, but it was an archaeological dig where they'd found a lost city of the Phoenicians. So the archaeological st- stuff kind of interested me. But mostly it was a sort of battle about two two men. There was there was a kind of, what I remember, there was the archaeologist and the other protagonist was were in love with the same woman. And there was the intelligent, smart, sensitive one missed out on the girl. It's been a bit of a theme in kind of teenage reading. But mm, uh, it was, mm, I can remember mm. being, I can remember enjoying, you know, the page-turning plot and I and enjoyed the feeling. And I went on to read other ones and I read some Desmond Bagley, but I, it, I, to be honest, as I'll say, I, I, I was reading. I'm having to read classics for school, and I just couldn't. I couldn't get on with the, the, the predictability and the woodenness and the. I didn't. It, they weren't enjoyable enough. I think you were a far more advanced reader than I was. I went well, through. I, just I would just found read the, Lord of the Rings. I read it every year. I think I told you for seven. I, I read Lord of the Rings a years, lot because I just yeah. could, I, nothing, <laughs> n- nothing, nothing matched it for it, years for me. It will surprise listeners to who are familiar with me from my love of the neglected lady novelist <laughs> to to learn that I went through a Jack Higgins ah. phase. Who's now, Jack, Jack Higgins, Higgins is good. Uh, right, Nikki, as you say, right, Jack Higgins. Who's Jack Higgins? 
Jack Higgins was one of the best-selling authors of the 1970s and 80s. And to think we would live in a world now where people wouldn't know who Jack yeah, Higgins is. Of course, of course they don't, because it, it's just phenomenally popular in his day. It's all sort of, the eagle has landed, Luciano's luck was my favourite. <laughs> that, that was a sort of World War II mafia-based one. But most of my contemporaries, I, I would like to ask Nikki. well, I want to, um, most of my contemporaries... If they read when we were all 13 or 14, so this is like in the mid-80s, they loved Stephen King, James Herbert, Sean Hudson. It was those three. It was that kind of sex and horror. Those were the things they really liked. And I never really... I don't know about you, John. I never I, I never really got on with those. I think Stephen King is a good writer. Yeah. I've, so, um, I've, I've read... So, James I've, Herbert, I've read I don't him. know. I haven't tried reading one since I was a kid, but... I, I liked Stephen King, yeah. I, I went through the Stephen King phase. Did you? Um, Can you remember one that you particularly liked? It, it is that Stephen yeah. King? Yeah. Yeah, it, I really liked Misery. Um, well, that's, a very I liked, good, that's just a very good, yeah. hands down, very, very good book. It's but good. Like Steve, but Misery and the, the, my, my two favourites of his are Misery and yeah. uh, The Shining. Yeah. Both of which are books about, <laughs> I haven't, it doesn't change. They're both really books yeah. about writing. One is a book about writer's block and the other is a book about what it's, uh, how bad it is to have fans. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so yeah, sort the, of the self-indulgent, of yeah. you know. I think the, um, the thing with Stephen King, I got into Stephen King via Stand By Me because I absolutely was obsessed by Stand By Me. And that's that yeah. the film is based on a Stephen King book called course, The uh, Story yeah. Called The Body, which actually isn't as good as the film, you know. The body is... Uh, it was well, a lot, I mean, but that kind of led me I, in. I would argue that the same is true of The Shining, which I think is a, a, a masterpiece, a cinematic masterpiece. Stephen, Stephen King would, would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> he would. So, Nikki, what were your contemporaries reading first when you were a teenager, if they were reading? And what were you reading? Um, I think you're right, actually. I think the sort of the horror and sci-fi. And so I'm 10 years younger, uh, roughly, I think, about that, maybe eight years younger. But yeah. I think those those books still stood. And definitely Stephen King was, was a big author. And I think it was exciting. It's that moment, isn't it, when you get to, when you get to read A, scary stuff, you know, yeah. B, sexy stuff. Those are two sort yeah. of things. And also big books. Like there's, you know, but this was before Harry Potter because Harry Potter was quite, is like the first big books for kids. Whereas actually books for kids are always quite small when we were younger. And there's a sort of thing of like, I'm That's older now, I can tackle a big book. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King would give you the big book. Yeah, holiday, big holiday blockbustery kind of, yeah, you might, just made you feel like more grown up by even yeah. holding one. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's swearing and there's all sorts of things in there, which are, you know, and, and so yeah, I think my contemporaries were reading that and... I I read a bit of those things. I wasn't sort of obsessed, but I read a bit of them. But I I also was really into, which is very strange for how I can think about it now, but I really liked the kind of true crime, real life, Jack the Ripper, who what actually happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, okay. You know, kind yeah. of uh, any books that was like, you know, gruesome murders from, you know, this particular era, laying them all out. And I would love, I'd like lap that up. You know, just horrible yes, stuff. <laughs> I, I went through a p- period of reading that kind of shocking non-fiction, like Gordon Rattray Taylor's The Doomsday Book. You know that the planet is doomed. Did you? What, yeah, as a teenager? Eric von Daniken. I did did quite a bit of that as well. Yeah. Really? <laughs> just because I, 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 I think that just because they were, I don't know why it was. Is you got? I'm just that little bit because my teens were really the seventies. I think this is really interesting. You know, in one level, in one sense, we are all yeah. the same age. Mm. 
But when we atomize it down to yeah. our teenage years, those two really or three years or four or five yeah. years difference yeah. totally makes a difference in the landscape of it. I, this is what I thought after the children's episode, actually. You know, the cultural life moves at a faster rate um, for teenagers anyway. Yeah. But also fashions come and go quicker in, in terms of reading and, and books as they do in everything else. It's the same. It's like with your siblings. It's, I mean, we'll talk about this more when we talk about the, the book we're going to talk about. But the difference between 15 and 18, it's, it's an unbridgeable chasm. Mm. You're interested in different yeah. things. You don't hang out with the same people. And it's ridiculous now. And I think my, my brother and I are extremely close, despite living on the other side of the, the earth. I mean, we're extremely close. But, uh, you know, when we were teenagers, that's probably the most apart we've ever been as people because we had our own friends and, you know, I didn't want to be seen with him and his friends and... He was younger, yeah, I take it. <laughs> so what what was he reading? <laughs> no, he, no, no. He, or what was he no, reading he was, when? What, what was he reading no, he, three he, years he later? It's almost a bad question because that's what I did, and he just yeah, wouldn't. Okay. That was his thing. I'm not going to read. That's what you do. No, you read. I mean, he could, and he did, but he didn't do it very openly. He was interested in music, and he was good at sport, but he did. It was reading was was definitely my thing. My brother wouldn't read either, and uh, he was older. But he would. My mum occasionally would kind of. He was really into football. My mum occasionally would push him this kind of napper goes for goal. You know, this kind of like here you go read a what's it called Farley Moat. Oh, the name it was like this sort of like a you know boys novels there weren't so many boys novels at the time as there are now in in in, but yeah she would try and attempt to sort of push stuff at him but it never worked and he was never a big reader it's it's a really interesting never-ending publishing perennial problem you're you're describing there Nikki how do you encourage reluctant readers and because these years are the years where people drift Mm. away so for both you know societal and also commercial reasons it's in people's interest to try and keep kids reading but I mean there will be different views on this I hasten to add but the conversation in children's publishing is always do we go after kids teenagers who don't like reading or do we go after teenagers who do like reading well I was thinking about you know the YA fiction now is is market is pretty big right it's pretty successful you know if you go to a bookstore there's very satisfying amount of kind of YA fiction and I remember going to the bookstore when I was a younger teenager before we moved to Wilsdon where we lived in Belsize Park and there was a bookshop there and I remember like you know there's probably I don't know half a meter you know what I mean there was not very much of a kind of yeah anyway and and but we used to go and probably we would just me and my friend Emma funnily enough who's a feature before uh, we would go and we would pretty much do the whole lot we would take the whole lot you know we could do the horror but then we could do the romance and I found one of my old books that I was really into this Penguin Plus which was a kind of YA Penguin Plus I yeah. remember and I still got them and I thought I might it's called Mel can I read you the back of yeah, Mel the blur it. yeah Puff, Puffin Plus surely Puffin it, Plus I think it's uh, is it Puffin Plus it doesn't have a Puffin Yes, it is Puffin. I don't know, actually. Puffin Plus. Penguin Books. It doesn't really say whether it's Puffin or Penguin. Just calls it Plus. Give us the blurb. Mel by Liz Berry. 17-year-old Melody Calder is desperate for her life to change, but she isn't prepared for the turmoil into which she's thrown following her mother's nervous breakdown. Left alone in their squalid house, Mel determines to repair and redecorate. Then, while searching for furniture in her local junk shop, she meets the dangerously attractive Mitch Hamilton, (laughs) lead guitarist with top rock group Assassination. I love those guys. (laughs) Maybe they could do us a theme tune. Mitch is keen to help with the house, but Mel is suspicious of his enthusiasm. So Mm. when Mitch announces his intention to marry Mel, no one is more astounded than Mel herself. 
except perhaps for Mitch's jealous ex-girlfriend, the formidable Roxy Lee. And do you know what? I loved it. And I actually uh, thinking you know I might read it again. That's a damn sight better than many of the blurbs we <laughs> read out on Batlist. Yeah. Do you think, Andy, I, I wasn't really aware, I'm sure now there probably is, but I, I, I felt that girls were better catered for, teenage girls were reading those series mm. books even in the 70s, the sort of Mallory Towers and Nancy Drew mysteries. And I, I was never really kind of, I, I, maybe it was, it was, I just wasn't interested, but I wasn't aware that there were boys' books in the same way. I remember one weird summer reading P.C. Wren, who wrote Beau Jest and Beau Sabreur about life in the Foreign Legion. And I can remember absolutely not not one incident from any of them. I think I read three of them in a in short order. I, I'm interested at what you're saying there in, in relation to what Nikki was saying as well about yeah. YA and how popular YA is now. I mean, I can remember what passed for YA when, you know, I was a teenager. I wouldn't have touched it with a no. barge pole. Mm, I just yeah. felt uh, right. it, it was the equivalent of John Hughes films from the States. What? I felt I, I was being those. marketed. What? I felt I was a... Ta- no, oh, Andy, you're I, missing I felt out. I was a target market and I didn't want to be a target <laughs> market. So... Yes, it's full strength capstan or, or I'm not going to be bothered. Yeah, so I would <laughs> swerve. But my but so I was thinking about this. What where did I get my book recommendations from when I tried to find my way out of the children's world? And like John says, you know, I mean, I really loved Douglas yeah, Adams. Yeah, oh yeah. yes, yes. Really, really loved Douglas yeah. Adams. Again, we talked about before where you know something so well it becomes comforting and mesmerising and funny at the same time. Well, you know, the Hitchhikers books and the radio Glorious. series particularly had a big effect on my life. Actually, the, I've, I've written about this, but I do think the idea of Adams was so brilliant at presenting, not merely writing, but presenting himself as a writer. It's tremendously seductive. The idea that you were so brilliant that you could turn in a book extremely late and it would be great and you know but also the idea that you could take clever ideas and have fun with them that's very appealing to a teenager to a teenage boy particularly i think that 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 idea that you could be clever and make people laugh that's a powerful thing but i i didn't really like the stephen king or the james herbert or the or the sean hudson stuff that we were talking about and the book that i did really like which was absolute beginners by colin mckinnis we've done a whole episode on and go and find that listeners if yeah, you want to hear me talking about of, the influence Lord that the had Rings, on my life because that as i say that was my teenage kind of did you guys ever get into um well i was in my late teens i was in douglas copeland generation x was that a bit after yeah, before but... after it's your time t- no because i'm in my early to mid 20s and therefore this you you raise a really interesting point because that was peak i was like a late teen and that yeah. was just i was doing my a levels and that was like oh my god he's speaking to me you know right now, by that point, I've become conscious of these things called the books pages yeah, yeah. Right. and and the literary world. Right. And so it's hard to find a direct line into it that doesn't root you through what other people are writing and where it fits and all that stuff. Right. No, why? Sorry, just I finished this thought. I, my, I consider myself really, really lucky to have been 16 years old in 1984 because I got most of my ideas about the books that I could read and could find from what the bands I liked that I read uh, about in the NME were yeah, reading. Yeah. Because reading then, in marked contrast to what happened in the 90s, reading then is, however pretentiously, in your long overcoat, but bands <laughs> talked about books and were asked what they thought about 
of books and were asked to name yeah. books. And so all those things that on one level we would scoff at as cliched, like reading Sartre or Camus or... I look back and I think, God, I was really lucky that I had, I don't know, Ian McCulloch saying that he never went anywhere without a copy of La Nose or whatever, because I still read them. And we often say on Batlisted, well, there's no point in reading anything before you're 40 and we're, you know, we'll come on, we'll come back around to that in a minute. But how fantastic to be 15 and being pressured into reading something brilliant even if you don't understand it as opposed to feeling nobody's reading so you don't need to read you know I think that's a really lucky fluke Mm. of being where and when I was that particular age at that particular moment John did that where did you get your recommendations Uh, from I think I think you're right about sort of bands and I mean I part of it was because you know, my mum was teaching and we had English teachers who were quite smart. And I, I can't remember. I remember a book that really helped me bridge the gap was The Cement Garden by Ian McEwan, which I must have read when I was probably my last year at school. Oh, I can remember The Wasp Factory so yeah. clearly in the library. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was a big book. That was read by a lot yeah. of kids at school. The Wasp, Wasp Factory was, was a big yeah. book. Yeah, it's hard to imagine now what was driving your reading in the same way. I mean, you know, you were having to read classic novels and I, I did enjoy reading all the sort of the classic novels that we were studying but it's definitely uh, there was a there was a kind of turning point for me that that was the reading that the portrait of the artist by Joyce was that was the classic book that kind of it's a sort of bridging book between the book we're going to talk about and the rest of my life I think because that wow. how old I read were you when portrait you read that of the artist in my, when I was 17 my last year at school wow I John I I'm going to I'm going to offer a Nicky Birch style thing did you find it hard to read? <laughs> um, the thing is, yes, but I think by that stage I was already I was looking for stuff that was difficult. I mean, in that tiny, tiny it's very very okay. teenage kind of way. And that book, yeah. boy, that book is you know it is it is a challenge from the from the. Oh, I reread it last year where, and I found and it. From where would you read it, John? In you at seventeen, where would you talk me through the sort of scenario where you would read a challenging book? What you mean? Where? Where physically? Would where? I, would I? Where? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, go on. Talk yeah. us through what would. How would it work? Um, I would read it. I'd read it. I'd you know. I'd read. I used to read. Um. I used to read at night, and I used to read. I used to get. I always got up and read in the mornings. It's, it's just a habit. I, I got that. I got that habit as a teenager because I realised pretty quickly there was usually if I didn't do that, I would never. I always got up before everybody else because I liked doing that, and I would set the table for breakfast, and then I would eat my breakfast, and then I would go and read for an hour, and that that was a habit which I've sort of more or less kept to for the. Rest rest of my life I think you know when you always you get the questions that how do you how do you fit it all in reading was just that was I realized if it didn't do that I would all I would ever do is read books for school you know textbooks and set novel and I read Portrait of the Artist and you know that kind of prose is is I mean off the scale by the end of that book the final section of that book and the sort of the talking about being an artist and being a writer and leaving home and and and, and writing a poem there's a famous he writes an incredibly difficult structured poem the villanelle of the temptress about this woman he fancies all of that roiling kind of unarticulated sexual stuff that feeling of not being attractive enough of never going to you know you were never going to find the really attractive girls were never going to find you attractive suddenly I found in Joyce this this whole other universe that you could you could be maybe what you could do is is to write about those things and it was it was a massive change mm. and that's from that moment onwards I thought I you know like a lot of teenagers I thought I re- what I really want to do is to be a writer and and did you uh, well <laughs> it's debatable <laughs> I have written books. <laughs> he um, has. But it's, it's, 
when you're, you know, as it were, when you take all the onion skins away at the core of, I, I don't think I've changed in my ambition enough. And if I, w- I would be a happier person, uh, Andy and I were talking, when we were talking earlier about Andy and getting and, and writing, getting stuff done, I'd be happier if I could write more. I always go to Thomas Mann, you know, a writer is a person who finds writing more difficult than other people. And I think yeah. because, you know, we both worked as publishers, you know, we both worked as editors, we both, we worked, we, we I know I've, I have published some genuinely kind of important award winning writers so it's but strangely none of that matters in the end when you're doing your own thing you know doing your own thing when you're it's you and this idea of this strange idea of the ideal reader trying to work your own stuff out but I I honestly don't think anybody who's writing really writing finds it easy you know (laughs) I mean I know I know there are people that was always my advice to authors when I work with whenever they would say was they would inevitably I'm really struggling with this I would say it's okay here's it let me let me let you into a, a, a trade secret writing books is hard all books just writing about one subject yeah. for more than 500 words yeah. is hard let alone 50,000 or 100,000 yeah. words to go back to your desk every day and go back to the same thing you thought about yesterday and the day before that and the month before that and the year before that requires almost physical strength not just mental strength physical strength to do it doesn't require as much physical strength as working down a mine everybody clearly that's a more <laughs> demanding physical task but nevertheless it isn't nothing Nikki, I want to ask you some more about what you were... Did you read a lot of this? Were you a teenage reader or did you drift away? I did drift away, yeah. I did. I think I got into you know other teenage pursuits like not being at home. And I think you have to be at home to read. And I, think, I felt... That's why I was asking you, John, about where you read. I mm. was, you know, after 15, I was not at home. I was out. And I think that, that sort of affected me not reading. But my did, you know, I did carry on a bit and my lovely mum did still kind of continually try and kind of educate me up until I left home. So when I was about in the, the gap year, so to speak, yeah, did my A-levels, going off to university, went away for a year and I went to live in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is a... Or St. Vincent which is an island in the Caribbean. And my mum shipped me off with lots of uh, literature which she thought would be relevant. So lots of black British authors and Caribbean oh, authors. I know, uh, she was Go very on, cool. And uh, and so I read those. Um, well, some of those. I read Lonely Londoners and Wide mm. Sagasa Sea and those mm. sorts of things. So yeah, all really, really good books. Thanks, Christina, for giving me the only, mm. uh, only kind of, uh, that was, you know, before then I probably wasn't reading anything. But, you know, at that point I was help what do I do for the next year thanks mum but I think that's really interesting that's all I mean that's both a unique story but also a kind of typical one you know whenever I'm asked are my son or daughter's a reluctant reader what would you recommend I sort of I never know what to say because I think that little lightning bolt is either going to strike or it isn't and I've got a thing here Nikki we talked to we I mean, we made a joke about it, but we talked on an earlier lot listed about the fact that we both lost our dads when we were relatively young. And I'd just like to read you the beginning of a story that I can remember reading. You might know the story. I'm just going to not tell you who Mm -hmm. it is. But it, it kick-started a, a real obsession for me as a teenager. But also it's all tied in with that period of my life. And um, I found this story and this writer really helpful. So if you know who this is, say when I finish reading it, the story is called A Shocking Accident. Jerome was called into his housemaster's room in the break between the second and third class on a Thursday morning. He had no fear of trouble, for he was a warden, the name that the proprietor and headmaster of a rather expensive preparatory school had chosen to give to approved, reliable boys in the lower forms. From a warden, one became a guardian, and finally, before leaving it, was hoped for Marlborough or rugby, a crusader. 
The housemaster, Mr Wordsworth, sat behind his desk with an appearance of perplexity and apprehension. Jerome had the odd impression when he entered that he was a cause of fear. S sit down, Jerome, Mr Wordsworth said. All going well with the trigonometry? Yes, sir. I've had a telephone call, Jerome, from your aunt. I'm afraid I have bad news for you. Yes, sir. Your father has had an accident. Oh. Mr Wordsworth looked at him with some surprise. A serious accident. Yes, sir. Jerome worshipped his father. The verb is exact. As man recreates God, so Jerome recreated his father from a restless widowed author into a mysterious adventurer who travelled in far places, Nice, Beirut, Majorca, even the Canaries. The time had arrived about his eighth birthday when Jerome believed that his father either ran guns or was a member of the British Secret Service. Now it occurred to him that his father might have been wounded in a hail of machine gun bullets. Mr Wordsworth continued to play with the ruler on his desk. He seemed at a loss how to go on. He said, You know your father was in Naples? Yes, sir. Your aunt heard from the hospital today. Oh, Mr Wordsworth said with desperation. It was a street accident. Yes, sir. It seemed quite likely to Jerome that they would call it a street accident. The police, of course, had fired first. His father would not take human life except as a last resort. I'm afraid your father was very seriously hurt indeed. Oh, in fact, Jerome, he died yesterday, quite without pain. Did they shoot him through the heart? I beg your pardon? What did you <laughs> say, Jerome? Did they shoot him through the heart? Nobody shot him, Jerome. A pig <laughs> fell on him. An inexplicable convulsion <laughs> took place in the nerves of Mr. Wordsworth's face. It really looked for a moment as though he were going to laugh. He closed his eyes, composed his features, and said rapidly, as though it were necessary to expel the story as rapidly as possible, Your father was walking along a street in Naples when a pig fell on him. A shocking accident. Apparently in the poorer quarters of Naples they keep pigs on their balconies. This one was on the fifth floor. It had grown too fat. The balcony broke. The pig fell on your father. Mr Wordsworth left his desk rapidly and went to the window, <laughs> turning his back on Jerome. He shook a little with emotion. <laughs> Jerome said, What happened to the pig? <laughs> that's the and that's the ending of the opening of that story. Now I'm really laughing, Nikki. You look almost you look like you you look almost pained by that. I know. I can Poor remember reading that. I can remember reading that story the week after my father died really? and laughing really? and laughing and laughing. I thought it was one of the funniest things that I'd ever read. Who was it, everybody? It's uh, I know. It's all in there. All the clues are in there. Uh, Graham Go Green. on. It is a story called A Shocking Accident by Graham Greene. The story is not about that. The rest of the story is about Jerome growing up and going through his life and seeing if he can find anyone who he can tell about the circumstances of his father's death without making them laugh. It is the most, and sure enough, the woman he marries is the, is the woman who says to him, not what happened to the pig, but what happened to you. Right? I is the Brilliant. most 
high wire act yeah. of a story. Is that? Do you think it's quite funny? I'm going back to the fact that you, you know, so your dad died when you were a teenager. Did that spin you out into reading more, not bleak books, but do you know what I mean? Because that thing is, you obviously at that point, I imagine you get in touch with your emotions pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I, be, I did become having been obsessed and remaining obsessed with the Beatles. I did become completely obsessed with Graham Greene. Graham Greene, who I still love, and I still hope we would do yeah, an definitely. episode on. We've talked about before. Is the Catholicism of Greene a problem? Well, I wasn't a Catholic, but Greene is such a teenager in how he views the world, such an adolescent that. It it speaks to a certain kind of adolescent and this is relevant again to the book we're going to talk about a certain kind of long raincoat wearing british (laughs) smith's listening teenager which is what i was you know i loved that combination of eeyore like gloom and humor and nikki i don't know about you but i I, i'm not saying when i told people about my father dying that they laughed of course they didn't laugh but there is an element of about how do you tell people in a way like any bereavement how do you tell people in a way that is truthful emotionally truthful but doesn't make them feel awkward that's part of the one of the weird things about grief and certainly as a sensitive teenager you know i didn't want to make anyone i felt awkward i didn't want to make anyone else feel any more Mm. awkward than they already felt so that story really spoke to me and it's funny you know it's funny so that was helpful to me we'll be back in just a sec when did you uh, when did you first read The Catcher in the Rye? Uh-huh. Nikki, when did you first read The Catcher in the Rye? Do you know, I can't remember, but it would have been as a teenager, I think. Probably, right, I teenager, probably suspect yeah. it would be a late teen because I had a bit of a, you know, as I said, I went off not reading more than just kind of murder mysteries and things like, you know, true crime. Probably wasn't reading at all, out partying. And then did A-levels and did that thing where everything is so important. You know, when you're A-levels and you're yeah. like, <laughs> I, I, I'm, everything's, everything's so meaningful. And that's when I got into, you know, Generation X, and I probably read Catcher in the Rye. I suspect at that same time because life is really important when you're doing A levels. So I suspect that would have been that end. I read it as a teenager. I'm sure John did. I'd just like to make the point before we start talking about it. Parts of The Catcher in the Rye were written 80 years ago. Uh They were written, it wasn't published to the early 50s, but it was written, a lot of it was written in the early to mid 1940s. And it still sells some incredible quantity of copies every year. And it's still accurate to say whatever one's position on it it still represents or doesn't represent a teenage experience mm. that it has become part of the world's teenage experience Absolutely. to read the catcher in the rye so john when, when can you remember yeah, where you I were when you read it remember it really clearly because we moved house too much when i was a kid i think i did sort of six or seven schools which was never great and the, the last big move was from a, a school in new zealand that i I'd, I'd, I'd not really enjoyed i'd been quite quite aggressively bullied and we arrived at a news news school in Auckland so I was 16 and I really liked this it was one of those things I found a school that I hated school as I think I've said but for the first time I felt this was this you know had good teachers and I I made I made friends with a couple of other kind of geeky well you wouldn't have called we we wouldn't have defined ourselves as geeks then but we were people who read and talked and we used to go to the theatre you know 16 year olds that kind of thing work and I, I just remember reading it as a 16-year-old, knowing that Holden Caulfield was a 16-year-old. And it, it, I mean, I suppose like every kid who reads it, the voice grabs you by the throat and doesn't let you go to the last page. And I remember reading it really quickly. Yeah, I suppose that's what the book does. It's, it's, it somehow internalises itself into your own sort of self-dramatising kind of instincts that, you know, that sense mm-hmm. of the you against the world, of phoniness 
and crumminess and going back and reading it is, is quite something it's so so much sad I felt quite emotional rereading it really so I read it the first time a few days before my 19th birthday no my 20th birthday I read it when I was 19 and I read it very self-consciously knowing that yes. it was a bit that one had to read as a teenager and that I'd better do it quick before oh, I turn great. 20 right yeah and I'd already had my teenage epiphany with absolute yeah. beginners so in a sense 19 was too late to come to the catcher in the rye and I remember reading it and thinking yeah it's okay and the, this guy doesn't speak to me you know I was very chip on my shoulder about yeah, yeah. American but you know, I was really into Orwell and Graham Greene and Larkin and British articulations of these things. And I was hostile to Hunter Thompson and Heller and stuff that I felt we were being sold and on the road, God help me, you know, these may have been countercultural products, but they were still American products that we were being forced to consume. <laughs> And uh, so the catch in the rye kind of fell into the, in, in, in that bracket. And I can remember reading it and think, well, it was pretty good. Yeah, it was okay. You know, that guy's a bit of a pain in the ass. And then I read it the week before last. And I spent the whole book thinking, oh, man, this yeah. poor kid. This Holden Caulfield kid who's yeah. all front. But he's, so, he's not all front. This kid's yeah. having a breakdown. That, why can't yeah. anybody see that? Why isn't, no, why isn't anybody mm. intervening for this child, right? And I don't want to spoil it. If, if for any reason you haven't read The Catcher in the Rye, the knowledge that, that he let you know very sparingly that first of all he's lost a sibling and second of all he's watched a child at his school commit suicide in front of him in the space of this let's call it a six month period and these are though you could be forgiven for not realizing it spinning him out in a very dramatic way to me as a 52 year old not as a father i don't mean that i mean just as being better at reading than i was when i was 19 and more appreciative of salinger as a craftsman as a new yorker as part of william maxwell's stable of writers i found it very liberating john that now i was no longer being expected to identify with a figure i didn't identify with for cultural reasons i was free to appreciate the craft of the book I, I, I'm like you I found it really moving really moving so that's really interesting because I had a similar thing I was a little bit suspicious my grandmother god bless her who was working class council house in Sunderland bought me on the road for my 15th birthday she's she, she, she posted it to me all the way to New Zealand Jack Kerryak she used to call him I remember <laughs> <laughs> but she thought the writing was beautiful he's the, he's the writing's beautiful a bizarre book to give a 15 year old but anyway. I, I voted for you as a big <laughs> exactly, candidate exactly so um, and then, so I really enjoyed it, but I've quickly, you know, it wasn't Alan Garner, it wasn't Tolkien, it wasn't feeding into my kind of sense of who I was. I mean, it, it was a slightly weird, I mean, New Zealand high school felt more, you know, I was a long way, I was a long way from England, but I think I've said this before. So anything English for me was, was, was sort of sacred and precious. I have not read anything else by Salinger since. And I think part of that was I sort of felt that although I'd internalised and really liked Holden Caulfield, it was kind of 16, 17. By the end, as I said, 17, I was reading J James Joyce and then I was kind of off on a, on a totally different journey. And like you, coming back to it, first thing that strikes me is what a brilliantly constructed, controlled bit of writing it is. It's 
You know, if you, you want to teach somebody about, about voice in a character, because that voice is a high risk, right? That voice could grate very easily. Yeah. And does, I, I think, and, and does, and is intended. That's, that's part of the thing. I think you're supposed to find it scratchy. Yeah, the scratchy and the repetitions. And it's, it's still got that amazing, freshly minted kind of the outrage. There's that bit where he's in the cafe at the, at the, at the, the ice rink and she keeps stop telling him mm. to stop shouting. And he's, I'm, you know, he but I'm not. The funny thing is, he yeah, clearly, yeah, you know, yeah. he's clearly out of control. And this time, I mean, what is this kid? This is a 16 year old kid sitting at bars, ordering, trying to order drinks One of the and being things turned I down for drinks. About, I mean, it's... Well, on another podcast, you can hear me talking about the experience of. of just recently reading most of Salinger's other work and um, one of the things that I learned about Salinger which you can kind of retrofit to this novel when you go back to it one of the skills that he had as a writer is he was king of the unreliable narrator and one of the things that strikes me as really unfortunate about The Catcher in the Rye is many of the young people who read that I'm not saying they're wrong, but if you relate too closely to Holden Caulfield, you're missing an element that seems to me totally central to what the book is about, which is that it's a psychological portrait more than it is a heroic portrait. It's supposed to show you somebody in turmoil who you shouldn't necessarily believe everything they say to you, and nor should you believe their account of how they feel about it. And that seemed to me really sophisticated. And certainly for the 1940s, that's way ahead of the game. As I said um, on the other podcast, I do feel Salinger is... He manages to have one of the biggest and most important novels of the 20th century and arguably be simultaneously one of the most underrated writers. Interesting, though, selling a million copies a year straight out. Yeah, I mean, it's that thing, isn't it? That, that I mean, I can't remember someone said that, you know, Huck Finn, Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye are kind of, you know, if you wanted to find the culture of America, those books are, are so, they're so, all three of them, the voice and the, the kind of the the language, they're, they're, they're such such extraordinary books. Fitzgerald is a real presence here. Did you feel that going back yeah, to it? Very much. Very much yeah. so, and there's that great bit because of all of that old, you know, the way that he he like he likes Gatsby, old sport. Yeah, and you can sort of see Holden is a good, he's a good reader. I love he's a his reader, bit. and he's a good reader. Yes, absolutely right, absolutely he's, right. Yeah, this brilliant thing about Romeo and Juliet, best ever. You know, it, the kind of energy goes out of the. I didn't much like Romeo and Juliet, but well, that guy Mercutio, you know, that that guy was cool. And then when he dies, like the energy goes out of the play and he's telling the two nuns on the train, it's blowing smoke in their face. So there's that fantastic element to the book, which is he's channeling other writers, you know, both in terms of the character of Holden Caulfield, what Holden Caulfield reads and likes and how he expresses himself, but also how we as readers might see, you know, I'd mentioned Fitzgerald and Gatsby. I just want to read one paragraph and ask you if this reminded you of anything, because it really, really reminded me of something far more contemporary, not a book something else so there's a part in the book where near the end of the book where Holden is in New York and he's beginning to totally lose his way and he decides to get in touch with his former teacher Mr Antolini and Mr Antolini who's clearly a good sort says just yeah sure come over come over you can stay the night here so Holden is in the apartment with Mr Antolini and his wife and they're having a chat and Mr Antolini has said that he's worried about Holden and that Holden is heading for a fall Mr. Antolini didn't say anything for a while. He got up and got another hunk of ice and put it in his drink and then he sat down again. You could tell he was thinking. I kept wishing, though, that he continued the conversation in the morning instead of now, for he was hot. 
people are mostly hot to have a discussion when you're not. And so Mr. Antolini says, all right, well, listen to me now. I may not word this as memorably as I'd like to, but I'll write you a letter about it in a day or two. Then you can get it all straight, but listen now anyway. He started concentrating again, and then he said, this fall I think you're riding for. It's a special kind of fall, a horrible kind. The man falling isn't permitted to feel or hear himself hit bottom. He just keeps falling and falling. The whole arrangement's designed for men who at some time or other in their lives were looking for something their own environment couldn't supply them with. Now, when I read that, that really reminded me of a very specific thing, a TV series. A man falling and falling whose Mad own men. environment... Yeah. D- Don Draper. Ah. Yeah. It's Mad Men. Yeah, and, and I googled it, yeah. and I found Matthew Weiner's several interviews where he says, and one of them he says, at the bottom of Mad Men is Salinger. Wow, Salinger, Brilliant. not just the catcher in the rye, John Salinger, the mixture of American capitalism and spirituality, and the impossibility of squaring that circle is what Mad Men is about, and it's also what Salinger's work is about. And it begin. He begins that process in the Catcher in the Rye. But as we've discussed elsewhere, the extent to which he was successful in continuing to talk about it, we don't know yet. Because as far as we know, there's several novels and collections of short stories waiting to be published in the next ten years, which might tell us what he was doing. But he knew his territory. He just mapped it out in private. Yeah, a couple of bits made me really. The bit where he he talks about his brother's grave. And he says it was. It rained on his lousy tombstone, and it rained on the grass on his stomach. Really, mm. really hit me. The pain in the book. The, I, that's the thing I really came away with. The pain that Holden feels is so intense. I just read this little short passage about him because it's just. If, I mean, if people haven't read the book, it doesn't give anything away. And by the way, he says the one of my favourite things he says about if if you'd, I'd tell you the rest of the story, but I might <laughs> puke if I did. Mm. It isn't that I'd spoil it for you or anything. There isn't anything to spoil, for Christ's sake. Mm, mm. <laughs> good, good note on spoilers. But this thing about being yellow, it's no fun to be yellow. I mean, as in afraid. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not all yellow, I don't know. I think maybe I'm just partly yellow and partly the type that doesn't much give, give much of a damn if they lose their gloves. One of my troubles is I never care too much when I lose something. Used to drive my mother crazy when I was a kid. Some guys spend days looking for something if they lost. I never seem to have been anything. I never seem to have anything that if I lost, I'd care too much. Maybe that's why I'm partly yellow. It's, it's no excuse, though. It really isn't. What you should be is not yellow at all. If you're supposed to sock somebody in the jaw and you sort of feel like doing it, you should do it. I'm just no good at it, though. I'd rather push a guy out of the window or chop his head off with an axe than sock him in the jaw. I hate fistfights. I don't mind getting hit so much, although I'm not crazy about it, naturally. But what scares me most in a fist fight is the guy's face. I can't stand looking at the other guy's face is my trouble. It wouldn't be so bad if you could be blindfolded or something. It's funny kind of yellowness when you come to think of it. Mm. But it's yellowness, all right. I'm not kidding myself. Just. I want to say as well, while you were reading that, you know, Salinger's bona fides as a writer. Unreliable narrators, sure, but the rhythm of it. The yeah. rhythm of it, all, all his all his prose is. Do they all have first person narrator then? Are all his books like that? No, but they all have no spoilers. If like many of the people in the world, you haven't read any of the other ones. But one of the things that's tremendously appealing about them, 
the short stories particularly is they tend to feature protagonists who suddenly veer off in a direction two-thirds of the way through the story you you think why did that happen answer because people do bizarre things we can't trust them you can't trust nikki you can't trust people to tell you the truth right <laughs> because they can't even tell the truth themselves that's one of the themes of salinger's work is how do we burrow down how do we find the place where we can tell the truth to ourselves let alone anybody else as a sort of backlisted thing there's just one brilliant sentence about reading which i, I liked as well which i feel it could be a, something that we could have pinned over our desks what really knocks me out is a book that when you're done re- when you're all done reading it you wish the author that wrote it was a terrific friend of yours and you could call him up on the phone whenever you felt like it <laughs> that's a good definition of what you want from as a teenager isn't it you sort of want you want a book or a musician or a yeah like i loved i will come back to to this in a minute i've got a book here that this was one of my teenage obsessions that book there right uptight the velvet underground story by victor bockris I mean, Nikki, I read this book so many times, I can ventriloquize Lou Reed and John Cale's interviews <laughs> in it. it and, and it gave me the taste for oral history as well. Yeah. But it's a similar kind of New York counterculture. Everyone hated the Velvets. Not everyone, but nearly everyone else hated them. You know, they were, they're kind of artistic martyrs. They make these unlistenable records. They play in this <laughs> unlistenable way. And guess what? They're fucking great. <laughs> they're, if you got it, as Brian Eno famously said, only 2,000 people bought the first Velvet Underground LP, but every single one of them went out and formed a band. You know, if you got it, it spoke to you louder than anything else did. And I found going back to The Catcher in the Rye, it didn't make me wish that I'd been a different person. That's not what I mean. It made me feel so pleased that I had had those experiences with other books. Yeah. And so for me, Absolute Beginners is that that's... You know, that was the book that set the hair running for me and that the I identified with. But I wouldn't want to deprive anyone of that experience with The Catcher in the Rye. It seems to me that The Catcher in the Rye has become so massive, so monolithic, it blots out the sun, you know. And we almost... There's some conversation going on on Twitter today where actually The Catcher in the Rye is a bad book. You know what? It's really not a bad really, book. Really? It's just... That you might not like it, yeah. but I'm speaking as someone who's a spent a lot of time over the last 40 years reading at a professional level, and I'm here to tell you, with a degree <laughs> of expertise, it's not a bad book. <laughs> there you go. It's a book that you don't like or you don't understand, and I'm not saying I understand it better than anybody else, but just technically, just at the atomic level of the sentences. This is what I want to say to John. Like you are more, you are better schooled in the Maxwell New Yorker mode. Yeah right and we've said this before but it's worth repeating nobody gets to be published repeatedly in the new yorker unless they are absolutely the best at what they do and that's true of salinger i think you're right and i think i think it's a i think it's a musical novel by which i mean i just think the rhythm it is like a jazz riff i think its influence maybe is also you know you, there is something in the culture isn't there that holden represents this rebellious there's something sick in the state of denmark like our culture stinks and it still stinks Mm. it still stinks for for teenagers today as you say this book was written in the 40s it's a kind of that cloud has not sort of lifted from our culture and in in our each each teenage generation finds different ways of expressing it It was sort of punk for my generation but do you know who the first wave who the early adopters were of this novel they weren't teenagers do you know who they were who the first batch of people who contacted the new yorker and or Salinger to say wow man this book is is the truth it was 
World War Two veteran. Veteran. It was people. Really? People have yeah. said that it's a war yeah. novel well, it in clear, disguise. You know, because yeah. it's post-traumatic. It is kind of post-traumatic stress. This is shit. Salinger, who had fought on the beaches of Normandy, yeah. Yeah. who had seen, as Holden Caulfield does, his brothers die, people die in front of him who was traumatised by the experience, who had a nervous breakdown. It's not hard to see that in The Catcher in the Rye. Some kid trying to get the most that he can out of American consumerism. And um, guess what? American consumerism is failing him. But he's not even in a position to be able to communicate that to you straight. He can't find his way to tell you. You have to be sensitive to it. And my heart bleeds, actually, for the author who had to bear the burden of this particular book. You know, it really reminds me of Dylan being... Oh, sorry, we always talk about Dylan. I apologise, everybody. But <laughs> that thing that Dylan's had to live with of being labelled the spokesman for a generation, and, he, and he's struggling to be a spokesperson for himself, you know, let alone having a whole societal spokesman role foisted on him by people who... Who don't who, who don't want to look inside themselves and see what they have to say? So you can see I've got quite exercised by rereading this. Actually, I really yes made me you know really I'm, well you know I'm going to read a, a lot more Salinger as a result of it, which is an unexpected <laughs> an unexpected bonus of doing it. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to hear what be setting a kind of lock listed listeners challenge to listeners like reread it and tell us what you think, right? Because because it would be interesting to know, because I don't... What I'm interested, John, I, I haven't read it since I was a teenager. You hadn't read it since you were a teenager. Mm. What did you remember? It's a really good question. You know, because I, I can remember a bit, but I don't really remember that much of it. Well, tell us what you... Nick, what can you remember? If I said to you now, tell me one scene from The Catcher in the Rye, no, what I is it? I couldn't tell you a scene, actually. I think if I read reread it, it would come back. I, I Like most books, I don't remember often the detail, but I remember the feeling that I get you know, after having read it. Mm. And I, I remember this, you know, I remember the first person and I remember his, when you were saying phony, all of that sort of suddenly go, oh yeah, he says phony all the time, doesn't he? And uh, and I remember that feeling of he was, in my eyes as a teenager, he was really cool. Even though I think what you're saying is, really? it, it all gets quite bleak for him, right? Uh, but but in my eyes, I still think of him as being super cool. The mood, the mood I remembered was him being cold in Manhattan, right. uh, which c- comes near the end of the book. I remembered that quite clearly. There, uh, there's a scene I'd totally forgotten where he's staying at a hotel on his own and the bellhop suggests that he might like uh, some female oh, company. Oh, yes, yes. And, and, he's de- de- and then he's kind of ripped off by her and yes. the bellhop. And that's a really heartbreaking, that scene. I found that very difficult to read, actually. But I totally blanked that. I totally forgotten that. Weirdly, that, that is one, that's one of the ones I did remember. And I remembered, I remembered it that and him sitting at the bar. And I remember thinking that the derivation of the title as, uh, was a bit kind of weird as a teenager. But now I see it as one of the things that I like most what, in my reading What do you think The Catcher in the Rye is? I, so I'm putting you on the spot. I'll, I'll give you my my shot in the dark. <laughs> but I, I, what do you well, think I it think is? It's, I think he's desperately wounded. You know, that's why he's so obsessed with people who act. He hates the movies because he hates people acting out emotions. And he's not quite able to cut it in the in the adult world because he like he just doesn't... He want, He wants to make out or have time with, what's that great phrase he uses, to spend mm-hmm. time with a girl. He can only do it with girls he likes, mm. which, of course, is a really healthy... 
so I think this idea of you know the sea of Ryan and the children and being the catcher and stopping them yeah. from falling to, yeah. to the, yeah. their deaths is is it's he couldn't save his brother he couldn't save the kid in his yeah. class yeah. it's like he wants to you know he doesn't want his he doesn't want Phoebe to see the the, the curse word graffiti in the school his protective instincts are are kind of over exaggerated but it comes out as rebelliousness it's a brilliant psychological portrait I felt the catcher in the rye. I think it's really significant that he is a very accomplished reader and by implication writer. And he comes from a family of writers. His eldest brother is a writer in Hollywood. He talks about Phoebe's skill at reading and writing and his and his deceased brother was... And I, I felt it felt really true to Salinger that the catcher in the rye, the phrase of mis, which mis, is a mis, misappropriate, a mis... A, Malapropism, misreading of a, a song. That the catcher in the rye was exactly the thing you're talking about, John. You cat, you're the, you are the catcher in the rye. You are the truth teller. You are on the edge, saving the children. Right? You can, and you can see why mm. messianic teenagers yeah. res, res, respond to that reading. But the catcher in the rye, it seemed to me, is art, and that totally fits Salinger. The idea is what is going to deliver me from the trauma of the Second World War. What is going to deliver Holden Caulfield from his inability to express himself truthfully? It's books, it's reading and self-expression via art, whether that's art appreciation or making your own art. That's what The Catcher in the Rye is. <laughs> or else it's all those things or it's none of those things. And that, yeah, it is. And it's, the, it's that thing at the end, you know, says, I'm, that's all I'm going to tell you. Yeah. You know, the thing is, if you, tell, if you tell people stuff, what's the great line? Don't tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. Yeah, yeah, and, but that again, uh, you know that, and that, forgive me, but it genius. is, you know, this is the kind of Salinger as a student of Buddhism and haiku. Yeah, yeah. That's so brilliant. That's like a haiku-like phrase. It, and, and similar ideas crop up again, which is saying, basically, I'm putting it in a crass way, you have to learn to accept everything. Here comes everybody, James Joyce. Here comes everybody. You have to learn to accept everyone and before you can understand yourself you know he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be scared but he is full of fear you know the character's full of fear 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 um, because you know you lose people you miss, you miss people. people you don't catch everyone right the catcher in the right can't no. catch everyone yeah. yeah i mean i think you know if you're in a generation that is surely more enlightened about mental health it's still a f incredibly relevant book about depression i mean it really i mean it's about it's about all kinds of things but the kid's depressed but isn't that funny? Because that's not what I remember it. You know, that's what my memory is. This this kid was really cool. It's a bit weird, the book, but, you know, he's really cool. Uh, and probably because, uh, you know, and that's as a teenager, those sort of things you take from it is so different to what you take from it as an adult I think reading it. Sal I do not believe Salinger can possibly have imagined that the book would be read so widely by teenagers. And teenagers reading it, in the way that and it's not a wrong way that's not why i'm saying it but what teenagers need from a book is different from what we in our 40s and 50s in some ways need or want or look for from a book yeah because we're looking for people who can, he's cutting loose from society yeah. a little bit isn't he? he's breaking he's yeah. breaking away from where he, he's from and, and if you think okay there's also on the road and all these books that you read at this well i read at the same time it's all about okay i'm taking my life into my hands which is I mean, what you it, need at that time it, you know along with you know the films of james dean and the music of elvis presley he kind of created the myth of the rebellious teenager with this book and it's not a myth i mean it's just it's he's articulate he was articulating something that i think not in a 
myself conscious I'm going to write a teenage novel. He was trying to write a truthful novel about what it's like to be 16. It's also when you get onto the later stuff, which we don't want to talk about too much here, but when you get onto Seymour and Introduction, for instance, I kept having to remind myself that it had been written 70 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. It's inconceivable, almost inconceivable, that something written that long ago could feel so in touch with so many, not just contemporary trends, but things that have come and gone in that in the intervening time. Postmodernism come and gone. Autofiction is probably heading out now. It fits that bill as well. And it has a kind of, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this, John, but the kind of it seems to me the great unfairness of the monolithic reputation of The Catcher in the Rye. You know, The Catcher in the Rye is a really promising first novel by a guy who's an incredibly talented and unique writer. And The Catcher in the Rye doesn't give us an insight into what... It's like an introduction and then this weird thing happens where it becomes phenomenally popular. It's like if William Golding had stopped writing after the spire say you know and had not fought back from the success of lord of the flies what publishing folk call voice-based fiction you know this is the influence of this book is everywhere still i think i'd like to thank you both for engaging with the catcher in the rye in in our advanced years actually (laughs) it's been to be honest it's been it's been it's really revelatory and as nikki said i mean we'd love to know if there are other other uh, listeners out there who who want to share about their, their response to it it's, it's fascinating i i'd say if you've not read it read it for sure monumentally important piece of literature but as we said earlier try and forget yeah. try and forget that it's this monolithic you know monolithic thing and try imagine that this is the first novel by a guy whose stories you've enjoyed in the new yorker yeah. and then see how you feel about it If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.